When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Energized, a series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Iberdrola, which brings together leading voices to discuss the big issues within energy and the environment. I'm your host, Kamal Ahmed, and today's topic is Rethinking the Grid, where we will be exploring the importance of energy networks in the race to net zero. We have already had discussions on COP, on electric cars and hydrogen. Do catch up with those at intelligencesquared.com forward slash energized. There is no transition without transmission, a phrase echoed by countless politicians, scientists and publications. But what does that actually mean? Why should we care about the electricity grid when trying to combat climate change? So let's meet our speakers. First, we have Keith Anderson. Chief Executive Officer at Scottish Power, a subsidiary of Iberdrola. Before his appointment as Chief Executive, he was CEO of Scottish Power Renewables and led Iberdrola's international offshore business. Next, David Victor, Professor of Innovation and Public Policy at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. He co-directs the campus-wide Deep Decarbonisation Initiative, an effort to understand how quickly the world can eliminate emissions of warming gases. And finally, Antonella Battaglini, CEO of the Renewables Grid Initiative, RGI, which she founded in 2009. RGI is a collaboration of NGOs and TSOs, those are transmission system operators, from across Europe, promoting transparent, environmentally sensitive grid development to enable steady growth of renewable energy and the energy transition. So, Keith, let me start with you. I think let's go to table stakes. Can you just tell us exactly what an electricity grid and a transmission network, what they are? Sure. Okay. And let's, um, we're going to try and keep this really simple. Okay, <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's the only way to do it, in all honesty. So, it is, look, the grid is uh, it's a little bit like the forgotten part of renewables. As you say, it's the bit that people tend to put in the background and not talk about. Um, but it is probably the most essential thing we need to look at and focus on. So what, what is it we're talking about? The grid at its highest level, that's how we get the power from the wind farm, the generating station, to your home, to your business. Look at it in two bits. There's a transmission system and a distribution system. The transmission system is the huge big poles and wires, the huge big metal steel structures that you'll see down the side of motorways and then the distribution systems at a much lower level in terms of its power capacity and a lot of it's hidden under the street, getting the power straight into your house or into your local business. Probably the best analogy is to think about it a little bit like the road system in the UK. The transmission systems like the motorway network, it's shifting huge amounts of transport or power from node to node. And then you split off that transmission system or off that motorway into the A roads, the B roads, down to your streets. That's what the distribution system does, takes it down into that level. So that's what we're talking about at a kind of 
hopefully high level. Keith, nice and simple, super clear. Thank you so much for that. And why is the transmission network and the electricity grid so essential for a smooth energy transition? So it is, it's critical and it's a, we're at a critical juncture with the system. And I suppose this, it's a, a challenge that's been created over 10 or 15 years, okay? The system we have was built and designed around huge, big centralized generating plants, big coal plants, big nuclear plants, taking it from those big centers and then spreading it out down across the country into your home, okay? And we are turning that system upside down and inside out because we're moving to a distributed generation system. Simplest thing to think about. We're moving to a system with wind farms that are out in remote parts of the country. We're building wind farms out in the sea. So we're needing to bring all of that power back in and then push it back out. At the same time, other big challenge for the system is we're in a position where we want to electrify transport. We want to electrify the heating system. So all of a sudden people's homes are becoming storage areas for power. They are in some cases with solar panels becoming generating units. So they're also pushing power into the system as well as taking more power off the system. And then in terms of size and scale, we're probably going to need as a country in the UK to multiply five or six fold the amount of renewable energy on the system to replace all the old coal and gas, as well as meet the higher demand because we electrify transport and we electrify heat. Nice, simple way of thinking about it is we're on a mission as a country to electrify the hell out of everything. And therefore we need massive investment to change the size of the transmission and distribution system, more power through it, but also its entire shape and structure because of what we're doing in terms of the locality of the power sources. Is that as big a challenge as when we initially built the initial grid system? Actually, in many ways, it's a bigger challenge. It's starting from scratch is in many ways easier because you could design it and build it in that way, okay? So if you, were, if you were building the energy system we need and want now, this distributed system, you wouldn't start where we were, where we are today. You would start with a distributed system. So we are really literally having to re-engineer the entire thing, okay? Why, why, why is it such a big challenge? partly because we've been slow at recognizing that in terms of planning and regulatory processes. We're now catching up on that. We've now got a strategy to look at what are all of the critical lines and critical areas we need to invest in, when do we need to do it by. If you look at it in terms of delivery of net zero, delivery of 60 gigawatts of offshore wind, delivery of electrifying a transport system and stopping the sale of new petrol and diesel cars, Etc. We have big timelines to look at, and therefore we understand the timeline for the reinvestment in the grid system. And it's now a big push, a big race. And do you feel, do you feel, Keith, given you've put a list there of some of the things that are happening in the UK, do you feel that the progress that has been made, as you say, maybe we started too late here in the UK, but do you feel that progress is in the right place now? The strategy is in the right place. So we've got a better strategy and a better understanding of what we need to do and what we need to deliver, okay? The investment's in the right place. Money is not the, the constraining factor. There's lots of people uh, like us. We 
You know, as an organisation in the UK, we're looking at investing over £10 billion over the next two or three years, a lot of that into this grid system. So the finance is there. The issue is between understanding where we want to be and where we are today is there's a big bit in the middle called delivery. That's the challenge. <laughs> so how quickly can you deliver and build? How quickly can you get this through a regulatory system? How quickly can you get it through a planning system? Those are the big challenges. David, could I bring you in? Your work at UC San Diego is focused on reaching a zero carbon economy with the Deep Carbonization Initiative. From a US perspective, David, what are the key opportunities, the key challenges when you look to decarbonizing the electricity grid? Well, thank you so much. In many ways, the situation in the United States is very similar to what Keith has just laid out in, in your country. We have uh, enormous dependence on the electric power system today, and in particular, the reliability of the power system. All of modern society is basically organized around electric power and around electric power grids. And we're looking at roughly doubling the size of our grid system as we go to zero and net zero. And that's because we're going to be electrifying. We don't know how much. We're going to be electrifying a lot. Certainly, road, most road transport transportation is going to be electrified and a lot of buildings and, and, and so on. And so we're in the very similar situation where a lot of money is coming in. We're building a lot of renewables, solar and wind. We're keeping our nuclear plants open to the extent that we can do that, closing our coal plants. The overall investment picture is, is actually looking pretty good. For us, the really big challenge is, is building stuff, and in particular, getting permission to site them. You know, long power lines take a decade or so, sometimes longer to build and get permission to build. It's not the engineering of it, it's the politics of it. And that's really become our, our core challenge as we look at net zero and the role of electricity. David, I'm hearing quite similar thing, Keith, in, uh, from what we heard from Keith around this notion of planning, regulation, execution is the challenge. Could I ask you a similar question as I asked Keith, in terms of the progress that is being made in the US, I got a sense from you, Keith, that you felt net optimistic. As you say, there's a big execution uh, period to come for the United Kingdom. David, do you feel net optimistic about where the US is sitting in progress towards the key goals that you've just outlined? I feel optimistic in the sense that we know that electricity is central. We're mobilizing a lot of capital and we're, and we're deploying things. I feel that our politicians have probably set goals that cannot be reached in many cases. I live in California. We're, we're in the process of going to net zero by 2045, leading with the electric power sector. Very, very aggressive programs. We don't really know how to operate grids with these levels of renewables and keep them as reliable as they need to be. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in learning. And so I'm optimistic that we have the processes in place to, to learn and to know, to learn more about the things we don't know and to run experiments. I, I think we don't just we just don't know how quickly we're going to be able to to build the whole system out and to electrify it, electrify the hell out of everything as as yeah. as Keith says and so that that's just requires some modesty in terms of the 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 rate at which we're changing this system is just extraordinary. I will say one last thing about this, which is one source of optimism is that the only major industrial sector where we're making rapid progress on cutting emissions is the electric power sector. And that's come from closing coal. It's come from uh, a lot of renewables, from energy efficiency. And the overall picture, uh, the, the picture is very, very encouraging. David, that's really um, has raised a lot of good conversation points that we can get to a little bit later in this uh, conversation. So thank you so much for that. Um, Antonella, could I come to you on the continent of Europe? Talk us through 
where you think the progress is being made, some of the challenges, very similar to Keith, very similar to David. And also just run us through the RGI's mission and, and where you think you are on that journey. Thanks a lot. So first of all, I would like to start with RGI because it's a unique organization. And uh, despite the fact that it was founded in 2009, there is still no one like us, uh, nowhere in the world. I set up RGI when I realized that without the electricity grid, we could not grow renewables. And so one of the main problems with renewable, uh, sorry, with the electricity grid has been and continues to be public opposition. Of course, the permitting process is an element of also public opposition. And today we see that this is a common challenge anywhere in the world. Although what has changed in the course of the year, there is a, a broader recognition that electricity grades are indeed indispensable for achieving our electrification and decarbonization target. So with RGI, we brought together former enemies to find the solutions that could tackle not only the technical side, which my colleagues here have already said is not a problem, but rather the social and environmental side. Our experience, of course, has been extremely valuable for the progresses that we have made in Europe. Today, I think uh, uh, Europe is a leading uh, area when it comes to coordination among the transmission system operators over a very large geographies. The entire European Union is connected through grid codes, which obviously is a key fundamental asset to keep system stability and also continue to expand the grid as it is required. However, no one really wants to talk about grids. Now, since a couple of years, there is more attention, but grids are not a subject for conversation. Policymakers feel uncomfortable with grids. And I would like to argue that uh, transmission system operators have been very quiet in uh, shouting about the risks of not investing enough. Civil society group funders, they have always been pushing for more renewables without uh, taking any notice on how to connect those renewables. Keith mentioned analogy with the road system. I would like to use a different analogy. I would like to use the analogy of the blood system in a human body because the energy system is uh, like a human body in a certain way. You have a organs, you have the entire body that needs to be serviced by the blood vessels. And all the body is important. And if you damage or you do not have enough sufficient blood vessels, of course, your body suffer all of it. In Europe, currently, there is a strong push for reducing the permitting time for building uh, grids. We will have to see how it goes. There are opportunities, but also there are a lot of risks. And probably we will discuss about this in the course of this um, interview. Thanks so much for giving that overview, Antelle. Could I ask you a similar question that asked to David and uh, Keith? Do you feel optimistic about the timelines that have been set? Can they be executed? It depends, because 
the timeline requires a massive amount of infrastructure buildup, not only grids, but also converter stations, renewables. So it's infrastructure that is really massive and it's going to have impacts on communities, on the workforce, on the supply chain. So it's not just the permitting element that is important, but it's the entire package. And my understanding is that only if we build well, we will be able to build all of it. But if we build badly, we may be able to build faster the first two, three, four, five, ten projects, but essentially we will stop and never reach the target. Fantastic, Antonella. So some great opening thoughts from our three expert guests. You're, you're listening to Rethinking the Grid with Intelligence Squared and Ibadroli. You're very welcome uh, this very important uh, discussion. Let's get into a few of those questions that have been raised by our uh, three speakers. Keith, can I come to you first? Talk about execution and timeline. Antonella there said, if, if we build the first five right, that might give us some positive momentum and energy. If we get the first five wrong, we're going to be into all sorts of problems, which I think is a, is a nice way of thinking about that initial challenge. What should be the first five in the UK? How, how, how is the energy industry here in the UK thinking about how to prioritise that route from the power source to the thing I plug in in my front room. Sure. So that's a piece of work that's uh, that, that has been looked at hugely over the last the last year in particular. So if you go back uh, back in time in the UK, um, the regulatory process and the the thinking process was around wait till you can prove the demand is there, and then we'll build and we'll process the building. Okay, and we're shifting and pushing and moving the regulatory process and and funding process to say, look, no, you need to build ahead of time. Okay. Now, there's, there's obviously a risk and a regulator always has a, a, you know, a concern about building ahead of time, that you're building assets that are paid for by the public and actually what happens if you build them and you don't need them. Okay. So we've got to a point now where there's enough clarity and certainty about what this country needs to do in the UK, what we're doing in terms of offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, what we need to do around transport that we've got over that hurdle of worrying too much about anticipatory investment. So as part of that, we've now identified, if you like, the first 20 to 25 strategic transmission lines that need to be built in the UK if you want to hit the offshore targets, the renewables targets, and if you want to decarbonise the UK's power industry by 2035. We know exactly which lines need to be built and we know where they need to go. Okay, so that's a big step forward. Okay, the challenge now is how do you get them through the process? Okay, the last time my company built a 400 kV big, big transmission line down through the centre of Scotland, it took 10 years to go through the planning system. Okay, if we take 10 years to put these projects through the planning system, we will be at 2035. We will not have decarbonised the power sector. And if you cannot decarbonise the power sector by 2035, it's impossible to decarbonise the rest of the country by 2050. So it's critical time. Keith, okay. isn't, this, isn't this one of the, the most significant issues that you've raised? If you think about your experience, 
building grid improvements or new grid power lines. If you think about the planning processes that went towards uh, building new nuclear power infrastructure in the UK, if you think about what is needed to build a few new houses on the edge of a village, yep. Keith, are you genuinely hopeful that the well, politicians, that the yep. regulators are going to get us there? So this is the challenge for the country. And it's a challenge, you know, and I think we need to think about this as a national challenge. And that's the approach we need to take to it. And that's where we're trying to push the government, which is you need, you need to lead a national conversation about what are we doing, why are we doing it, and why do we need to do it this way? Because unless you have that conversation at a national level, you will end up having the conversation with every town and village and local community down the length of a line. And that takes an awful long time to go through. So there are some big conversations we need to have up front about the net zero target, about the renewable energy, about the electrification of transport, and then a huge conversation about here's the grid system we need. The one we've got, we've substantially built 40 years ago. The one we're building today has to last us for the next 40 or 50 years. Here's the system we need. Here's where it needs to go. And then you address the big questions that people will have about, are we building these lines overhead? Are we undergrounding them? What's the route? What are we going to do about you know, the environmental impact if we underground it? What are we going to do about the cost impact? How does that get paid for and shared? But you need to have those conversations now and then take them off the table. You cannot repeat that conversation for every line mm. and every community and every village. Deal with it up front, take it away, and then you look at the specifics of every project. Yeah. And that's a big, big change in the way we approach national infrastructure. But if you look at the lessons of your the high-speed rail link, if you look at the lessons of other infrastructure projects, we need to change the way we do it because otherwise we won't do it in time. Absolutely. I mean, David, could I come to you? I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough in my job to spend a lot of time in America as well as here in London. As Antonella says, David, I must admit, I don't see it plastered across the front pages of the newspapers or part of the conversation on the news networks. What do we need a new national grid? People aren't marching in the streets for a new national grid. I mean, whatever Keith is dealing with in the UK, for the US, it's even more complicated given the federated system, federal government, state government, the need for cooperation between states. I mean, David, this is why this conversation is so vital, is it not? Yeah, I mean, but that's, that's reality. And I think the good news is that we're now dealing with this reality. We have to have the same national conversation that Keith is talking about. And the conversation is beginning. It's not on the news every night. It turns out that talking about grids is not sexy. It's not immediate. I think grids are amazing, but turns out that not everybody does. And, and so, the, but the conversation is beginning. And I, I think we have to be realistic then also about what's achievable because we're having that conversation. We're setting priorities. We've identified dozens of power lines that are very important. We've identified all kinds of projects that are very important. We're beginning to try and build them. We're also in the early stages of a major political discussion about how to improve permitting, citing the politics of that. I don't think we're going to be able to have a conversation with the country about these issues and then set these issues aside. I think the permitting questions are politically very charged 
And so they're not going to go away. We can make them a little bit easier with changes in law, a little bit easier with political discussions. But that's going to be a really major challenge. And I, and I think the last thing I'd say about this is we have to, the politicians have to be ready, maybe not immediately, but they have to be ready to have a serious conversation about what's achievable. If we don't meet our goals, my state of California is going to be 60% renewables by 2030. We don't know if we're going to be able to meet that goal. I don't know if the UK is going to be zero by 2035. There's all kinds of talking right now, and there's a lot of doing. We need to be ready to adjust the goals because the goals are unknowable right now. We just do not know how rapidly we can change the system. And so not meeting the goals is not the equivalent of failure. In this case, it's, it's a sign of trying and learning. And I, I think we're, we're going to need soon to be, begin to have those conversations. David, as far as bringing back in, Keith, David, are there any examples so far of where this has worked, let's say around permitting, for example. Is there anything that we can build on, case studies that we can build on? Well, I think there are many, not as many as you'd like to see. Let me give you one example. There's a company in New Mexico, PNM Resources, that has a lot of experience now with closing coal plants and then figuring out what you do with that facility. Actually, would like to close coal plants faster and to help reduce emissions. And one of the things they've learned is the need to engage with the local communities early. And when you do that, it improves the political prospects for closing things in a responsible way, for opening new things in, a, in an appropriate way. And I think what, what we're beginning to learn that with those kinds of case studies, there aren't quite as many examples with power plants, but we're beginning to see some. Those kinds of examples are going to be the models. And we are about to have the experience that is now very familiar in the UK and Norway and some other places with offshore wind. And that's exactly the lesson we've learned so far with offshore wind is if you do not engage the communities that are affected early on, then you could push your project fast and then your project dies. Exactly the risks that Antonella was talking about. Keith, you just wanted to make another point on the, build on what David said. Yeah. yeah, and it was one it was building what David said and also Antonella earlier as well, which is, you know, and you listen to this conversation and what's going on in Europe, what's going on in America, what's going on in the UK. The other big challenge, it's not to make it even more complicated, but is supply chain. We are all chasing the same manufacturers of cable, of transformers, uh, and of commodities. And, you know, again, for each country, uh, the more we invest in that supply chain, build that supply chain, uh, the more capability we'll have. But right now, you know, there is a, a real additional risk that actually there isn't enough manufacturing, enough supply chain to deliver everything we need by those timelines as well. And it's just maybe something we can explore later. Yeah. Antonella, can I bring you in on that question, but also on sort of private public and, and how the different stakeholders can come together to get the type of progress that both Keith and David have, have outlined. Again, I'm, I'm really thinking or exploring other examples of good practice. And what's your sense about European cooperation, obviously under the umbrella of the EU, but still there could be national tensions, different national approaches, which are very, can sometimes create some conflict between different countries and, 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 and journeys towards net zero. What's your sense across Europe, thinking particularly about public, private and partnership? So first, I want to mention that I tend to agree with Keith on the fact that we need a national conversation. Of course, this does not replace the need to also engage communities on the power line that is going to be built or on the corridor. But the national conversation is a kind of education that would probably soften the general public opposition, but also increase awareness about the role of grades. Unfortunately, energy regulators are not keen to approve costs related to this. In the national conversation, 
we, however, also need to talk about what is the future that we are creating. Because in this group, we tend to agree that electrification is what we really want, electrify everything. I also uh, share this because electricity is the most efficient way of, of fueling our economies. However, there are other visions of the future. You have had a program on hydrogen. Hydrogen is so dominant in the European context and not only in the global context. And so I think that stakeholders have a legitimate right to ask, what do we build the system for? And who is going to benefit from this system? And until we actually clarify these questions, you will still see legal cases and delays in the implementation. About the supply chain, I would like to mention here that uh, Tenet has uh, adopted, Tenet is the Dutch-German TSO, Tenet has adopted a new procurement approach that is giving certainty to uh, suppliers and therefore it promotes and supports the build-up of manufacturing capabilities. Generally speaking, the TSOs are very conservative actors, but the change is so fast that we need to get out of the comfort zone and really experiment with new approaches. So Tenet is one, the wind industry is doing something similar, and I would really recommend everybody to look at it. And are you seeing, Antonella, thank you for that, are you seeing, Antonella, public-private partnership in, in Europe where business is working with government and regulators to really take the action that we need to see? Well, in Europe, most of the electricity grid, if not all, is a national monopoly. So it is strictly linked to the, uh, to the public decision on energy policy. And there is almost no distinction from one and the other. What is probably now happening with more clarity on the targets, which are not great targets, but are renewable targets, there is uh, an increase in uh, awareness that a strong public-private partnership should happen to reinforce the manufacturing side, the European manufacturers. That's really helpful. Well, maybe, Keith, we should go back to nationalising a bit of our national well, grid. The, 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 the grid is, a, you know, it's a, you know, in many ways and definitions, you know, it's, it's a national infrastructure asset, you know, and that's why it is, it's held, if you like, in the hands of monopolies because of that, and that's why the regulatory process exists, because it's there for the greater good. That's why it's funded and paid for the way it is, because it's there for the greater good, and we spread the costs over a long, long period of time. I think, you know, Antonella raises a great point about what's going on with the TOs and in the north of Europe, particularly organisations like Tenet. And I think this is the, if you like, I, I'd said we moved the regulatory process in the UK to looking at anticipatory investment, which is step one. Step two is exactly what Antonella is talking about, which is how do you create those partnerships, the strategic partnerships with the supply chain to encourage more investment and faster investment and manufacturing capacity. And the big prize or trick for the UK, which we've not been that great at achieving uh, over the last 10 years, is how do you get that investment in manufacturing and supply chain in this country? 
uh, and how do we encourage that? Because that's where you'll get more private investment coming in as well. It's where you'll get more jobs, you'll get more innovation uh, and more drive. And you know, that's a big economic boost for the country uh, that helps uh, you know, also pay for the future of the grid system. So there's lots and lots of opportunity out there uh, to work between uh, what are essentially monopolies uh, and the competitive market to bring that in. And it's those strategic partnerships that you need to build and grow. The challenge to now in the UK is, as a grid company, how can I go and create a five, 10 year strategic partnership uh, with a manufacturer if I don't know the regulatory process allows me to make those investments and allows me to recover that money? Yeah. Uh, and that's where we need to push the anticipatory investment conversation even further. Keith, let's go to national specifics. So 25% of the UK's electricity comes from wind power and the vast majority of that, you know, originates from Scottish wind farms. Just for speaking about Scottish power specifically, how do we get that power to the rest of the UK as efficiently as possible? Sure. So that's a, a brilliant question. And it's a, a very, very live debate at this point in time. So right now we have a, a very good interconnected transmission system. So, you know, the, the power stations, the, the wind farms up in the UK, we've got big uh, transmission interconnection down to the rest of the UK. We've got interconnection across to uh, Ireland uh, and the UK system is also physically interconnected into Europe as well uh, and into Scandinavia to allow power to flow. But the big challenge for us is if you look at them, there's a big program underway to now to look at building massive amount of offshore, floating offshore wind around the coast of Scotland, which would create another 25 gigawatts of power, huge amount of additional power resource that's out there that we should capture and use. Um, that will involve building subsea cables. Uh, we've started doing this already. We've built um, one subsea cable uh, down the west coast from Scotland into the north of Wales. We need to build another five or six subsea cables to help shift that power about and across the system. Um, and that's a good, effective way of doing it. Um, we still need to invest further in the onshore grid system as well, but those subsea cables and subsea power is a good, fast, effective, efficient way of shifting power around the country. But you're already seeing, aren't you, Keith, that that can create controversies where those pipelines come onshore. Yeah, absolutely. Communities don't want to see that, that type of infrastructure built. This is yeah. why there is a need for this conversation. I, you're yeah. Absolutely. You know, and the, this, you know, this is always the truth of it. It's a little bit like offshore wind. I think you're politically... There was some thinking that, well, we put them offshore, people won't complain about them, they won't see them. It's like the grid, you can put the grid offshore. At some time, it has to come back onshore. <laughs> you can't get rid of that problem. You know, and until somebody tells me we can Wi-Fi electricity, <laughs> we need to have the physical wires and substations onshore. Um, so and that's why it's so important to have that conversation because we need to be open, transparent and honest about what we need to do of what this country needs to build to make this work. David, can I come to you just for some of the US experience, which has been so helpful for our conversation? Obviously, uh, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act has been seen as a real boost for America's move towards net zero. Uh, the incentives for clean energy that are contained in that with tax, obviously, measures and incentives. Is that all you need in America? I'm sure, obviously, you've raised the issues around uh, regulation, around partnership, et cetera. But has the IRA really changed 
the conversation in America in a way that you can see it being very positive? Well, there's no question it's been very positive. It's also changed the conversation in the United States. It's accelerated the reduction in emissions. The U.S. is not going to be on track to cut emissions by about 50% by 2030, which is the Biden administration's goal, the goal that they've said to the world. But we're definitely speeding up the emission reductions. So there's no question that it's had that, that impact. I think one of the things that's interesting about the United States is that it's a big country. And so parts of the country in, are windy. Uh, Washington, D.C. is windy for other reasons, but the middle of the country is very windy. And so we're going to do a lot of wind power there. We're, we're probably going to do a lot of offshore wind for political reasons, to similar to what Keith said. Southwest, where I live, is very sunny. And so we're going to do a lot of solar there. And so the kind of grid we're going to need and the kinds of grid control systems, they're going to vary a lot. And there's a lot of experimentation underway around that. But when you take a step back, there's no question the Inflation Reduction Act or our IRA that that has had a really big impact. But it's also created at least two big political controversies that I think we need to watch out for. One is there's a huge amount of money being spent very quickly, and that's going to generate its own political opposition. You're starting to see that already in Washington with investigations and concerns about, are we spending the money wisely? How do we know we're spending the money wisely? And the other big controversy that's emerging is the one related to what Keith was discussing with regard to supply chains. Because we're also trying to get the same materials in the global market. We're going to see a big increase in the need for lithium for batteries, a big increase in the need for copper, a variety of other materials. And we're trying to produce more of that in the United States. And I'm a little concerned that the, the political blowback, as we try and move those jobs in the United States, the UK tries to move those jobs to the UK, other countries try to move those jobs to their countries away from China. That, that that's going to create some tensions in trade, and it, and those tensions could actually undermine some of what we're trying to do with the clean energy trans, transition, because that's a transition about technology, and that technologies generally benefit when they're sold, supplied, and, and bought in global markets, and the, and the companies can compete globally in, in as unfettered a way as possible. That's so true, David, isn't it? That this is, this is a global project, climate, creating... Um, uh, ways of tackling the climate crisis is a global project. And I think, Antonella, could I, could I bring you in on that? Because, of course, since um, the United Kingdom left the European Union, David was talking about you know, cooperation there and the need for us to be wary of the tensions that could build between different countries. When you consider the relationship between the European Union, continental Europe and the United Kingdom and non-EU members, other non-EU members, what examples or, or how optimistic are you that now that the UK is out of the European Union, there can be the necessary cooperation on, on finding some of the solutions to the, the issues and challenges that have been raised in this discussion? Well, maybe the UK should come back. That's a long, that's another long uh, whole that, series that, that, that maybe Drola could do for <laughs> us. But uh, at this stage, we're just going to stick with the climate crisis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but actually, the UK has joined the North Sea process, process, which is very welcome because everyone realized that if you want to build so much offshore wind in the North Sea, and do it in an economically viable way, we need it uh, to have also the UK participating in it. So I think that the Brexit was unfortunate from a, a climate and energy point of view, because obviously it makes the challenges of uh, integration larger. This will result in higher cost. However, in Europe, 
the European Union and in continental Europe, I think there has been huge progresses in uh, expanding the network, not only north-south, but also east-west, and also integrating neighboring countries. I would like to mention that uh, when the war in Ukraine started, Europe was able to actually increase connectivity to Ukraine and Moldavia, thus guaranteeing system stability in that area. And this is really thanks to the collaborative spirit of the European electricity grid. This should be expanded. And I think that a very large grid is good for variable renewables because the larger the grid, the higher the possibility of smoothing the variability and the peaks that are common with wind and solar. I, however, tend to disagree that climate is a global joint project. Maybe it's a global challenge, but definitely it's not a joint project because what we are observing is that uh, the effort that are being made to decrease emissions in one country or in one region are not coordinated in the broader geographical context. And this has been and continue to increase geopolitical threats with increasing risks globally. So probably the grid can be a mitigating factors where the grid can bring solidarity and sharing benefits, but a decarbonization strategy, which is also an energy strategy, needs to be much more coordinated with neighboring countries and ideally globally. And we have not seen this happening at all. That's a fascinating challenge, Antonella. Thanks for that. I'm just very aware of the time in this fascinating conversation. So we are going to go to questions which have been flowing in. So obviously the conversation is really sparking responses from our audience, which is great to see. I'm going to start with a question from Liz Barker, who says, what are the labour force implications of needing to completely rebuild the grid? I've heard that one of the most profitable future career choices will be welders. Such will be the demand for new net zero infrastructure. David, we often have conversations here in the UK from some of our leading entrepreneurs like James Dyson, etc. There just aren't enough engineers in the world, frankly. David, what, what's the feeling like in America? Do you have genuinely enough of the right skills to do this amazing project that needs to be completed? Yeah, I mean, we're actually very worried about the workforce issues. And there are big implications for jobs. And in general, it looks like the clean energy revolution is going to be very good for employment. That's a big part of the politics of this, of building political support for it. We're certainly concerned about the workforce, the aging workforce kinds of questions, the quality of jobs that are, that are created. And some of this relates to a very, very difficult political question we have, and not just in our country, but probably all countries these days, which is about immigration. And, and But I think this is uh, no question this is going to be good news for jobs and probably good news for engineers and certainly good news for welders. 
Exodus C. Keith, are you um, making sure that, um, that we're going to have enough, or, or how do we ensure we're going to have enough welders for the future? Yeah, being, being an accountant, um, I always <laughs> struggle to say we need more engineers, but <laughs> look, yeah, I, you know, it's critical, okay? Because what, what you see actually is the, pe the people who, who are doing engineering or who have engineering skills are also the people that IT companies are wanting, banks are wanting, cybersecurity companies are wanting, because it's that mindset and that ability to, to look at, at problems and solve problems. So engineering skills are, are, are in, under massive, massive demand, as well as, as we say, the, the amount of workforce we need. So you know, right now, today, I'm out looking for another thousand people uh, to bring through the front door of our company. We want 1,000 more people in the company this year, and those numbers will just grow and grow. Um, there's just a huge, a huge call out now for a much, much bigger workforce you know, to doing the, the physical work, to doing design work, to doing all sorts of creative digital work, because as well as physically building the grid, we need to digitize it and make it more intelligent. You know, there's a massive process here to get more out of the copper we have in the ground about the way we use it, the way we make demand flows and the way we manage and run the system. So there's a huge shift from just about being physical engineering to being about digital engineering and a huge amount of innovation required as well. And yes, we need thousands and thousands of more people uh, coming into this. Industry. Well, that seems to be a big part of this big conversation we need. As, as you yep. said, David, not many people are that keen on uh, a grid conversation, but they are very much keen on a jobs conversation. So that's a fascinating way to um, think about it. Uh, Keith, thank you very much for your question, Liz. Keith, geographically one for you, Sam Taylor asks, what are the potential consequences of Scottish independence for the investments necessary to construct the GB, Great Britain, grid of the future? I do believe Northern Ireland is actually a separate and is doing its grid work with the whole island of Ireland. But as a Great Britain approach, what could be some of the challenges if Scotland were to become independent? OK, Sam, so, yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. The energy system is a, is a country-wide system. It's a GB-wide system. The grid is a GB-wide system. The interconnection is, is designed that way. And no matter what happens politically, if you look at uh, almost every country in the world, what countries are doing and moving to is being more interconnected. So I think no matter what happens politically in the UK or in Scotland, I think it would be almost inconceivable to think that any political party or government would think being less interconnected was a good thing. Therefore, you know, that gives me a lot of confidence that what everybody will want and agree on is keeping the whole system interconnected, looking at how we invest in the system as an entire island uh, and looking at how we interconnect our island uh, to the rest of the world as well. It's, you know, it's the only answer and the only way of doing it. Antonella, is there the national interconnectedness we need for this project, or where do we need to fill gaps and approaches on the European yeah. and on the European continent? Well, we are building the grid. We know what we need to do. What I would say is that we need to plan not just for the ten years ahead, but uh, until full decarbonisation, so twenty twenty five years. And this is a bit of preventive investment that Keith is also requiring. I'm actually optimistic that we will do that, especially considering the impacts of climate change are going to be much more severe and frequent. So people will realize that uh, faster decarbonization is the only way that we can go along with it. 
And David, what about state by state in the States and then obviously relations with North and South, so Canada into South America? How much does that have to play a part of the American approach or can America do it as a national project with state cooperation? We have to have a much bigger grid. What Antonella said a little bit ago, that uh, when you have a lot of renewables, the value of a bigger grid is just enormous. I would love to believe that American politicians subscribe to Keith's theory of politics, which is interconnectedness is, is a good thing. I think actually we're not seeing a lot of that. California, for example, is very suspicious of its neighbors. It's very hard to create much bigger interconnections in the American West. It's been very difficult to move huge amounts of power out of the Midwest of the country, which is very windy, to other parts of the country. Building new power lines, gas pipelines, all kinds of other things in the Northeast is a nightmare. We've just tried to build a pipe uh, power line down from Canada to bring clean hydropower across Maine and New Hampshire into the, the northeastern part of the United States. That thing has died politically because of local opposition also some commercial interests and local power plants wanting to keep the value of their local plants higher. So I think this is a national conversation that has to happen. The politics are nasty, brutish, and take forever. And and that's a really, really big problem. And and just to, to Canada and Mexico, there are huge opportunities there. The Canadian-U.S. interconnections are actually doing pretty well, except for these serious siting problems. Mexico is a different story because the politics in Mexico have been so volatile that it's very hard to build projects in Mexico and be confident of the economic return because the, the political system has been so unreliable, especially around energy issues. The notion of political stability, obviously in America, there is such sharp division between Republican approaches and Democrat approaches and shows just what the impact of um, those divisions can have. Keith, if I if you bring you back to the UK, the, the 2035 target was actually set by Boris Johnson, the not even the previous PM, but the previous PM, but one. How worried are you by political consistency? Or frankly, how worried are you, are, are you by the lack of political consistency? Um, well, actually, it's, a, it's not one of my big concerns. You know, I think that you know, one great thing that happened in the UK was putting the 2050 net zero targets into legislation. You know, and obviously laws can be changed, but I think there's pretty much unanimity across UK politics about what we need to do and by when. There are differences in how do you do it, how do you deliver it, uh, which mechanisms do you use, how do you fund it, who owns it, etc. But actually, I think there's a lot of unanimity around uh, how much offshore wind do we need, the, you know, um, what do we need to do about electrifying transport, what do we need to do about the heat system. So actually, shifting from parliament to parliament is less of an issue in terms of the overall aim and the goal. It's more of an issue about individual policies and mechanisms on, on the levers that we use to get there. Great. Thank you so much, Keith. Antonella, can I come to you? I'm going to put two questions together from Olivia Cordin and Julie Lawrence. And Olivia asked, and Julie asked a connected question. What approach do you think would be most efficient, time and costs, to enable grid growth and investments, centrally planned, mandated and regulated, competitive, liberalised, or is there actually a different kind of model? And Julie's asking a similar thing about the supply chain issue that we've raised in this conversation. Can we really rely on the market to provide? And how much does there need to be centrally planned, mandated and regulated delivery of what we need to create the grid we need for the future? 
So I think that uh, government roles in uh, defining, approving, and supporting grid infrastructure is very important because this can give confidence and build trust with civil societies and uh, citizens. So definitely I, a centrally planned makes much more sense than a bottom-up approach. For the supply chain, I would argue that uh, neoclassical economics have failed us. And we are seeing this over and over again. So we cannot simply rely on markets. We need to find new economic models that actually enable the buildup of not only the infrastructure we need, but also the services that society needs with public funding. And this is not yet a conversation because talking about a different economic model is a taboo. I want to add one additional element. If we want to build the grid fast and at the scale we need, we need to accept that we need to protect nature and people. Protecting nature is a fundamental task because without nature, we cannot meet our climate targets. And without people, we don't have the support to do either or. So this idea that uh, deregulating environmental legislations will give you faster deployment of grids, it's completely disillusional. It will backfire. And the only way that we can go ahead is to really bring different stakeholders together and plan for a strong grid and a strong nature jointly. Thank you, Antonio. I'm not quite sure we're going to be changing, as you say, the economic model maybe anytime soon, but that's a, it's an, an exciting challenge that you set there. David, can I come to you from Melanie Bishop, a question, and this will be now towards the end of this um, fantastic uh, discussion. And Melanie asks, uh, China produces roughly 75% of the global supply of solar panels and batteries and about 60% of key components for wind turbines. Do you feel that our reliance on China to be able to progress development of renewable infrastructure could see European stroke US development stall as China uses the supplies and commodities to advance their own grid as a priority? Well, they have been doing that to some degree. They've used strategic control over lithium, for example, which is a key ingredient in batteries to their advantage, uh, a variety of other technologies. But this is where the part of neoclassical economics that I'm not going to throw under the bus is, is the value of incentives and competition. Lots of Western governments have now created incentives to produce more lithium and other critical materials closer to home, also more solar panels, more semiconductor fabrication, and it's happening. And I think as the Chinese see more competition uh, in the global market, then they're going to have less power and less lower capabilities to, to basically control that market. So that's good news. I think that competition is going to be critical to ensuring reliable supply. I am, as I said earlier, a little worried that we go too far and we try and nationalize all these supply chains. What we need is diversity. And diversity, to kind of paraphrase Churchill from, from the conversion of the British fleet from coal to oil, diversity is what produces security. And we need, right now, we're too dependent on China. We need to reduce that dependence, create more diversity. And then I'm going to be pretty confident that, that we're actually going to see a much more reliable system of, of supply chains. Thanks so much, David. We're coming to the end of this fantastic, energized debate in partnership with Intelligence Squared and Ibadrola. Thank you so much for their support. But Keith, I want to come to you for a final thought to leave us with uh, something that we can understand the challenges that are coming um, 
ahead of us. After the discussion we've had, the great discussion we had, how optimistic are you or why are you optimistic, as you suggested at the beginning of this conversation, that we can hit the targets given the challenges that we have had so well explained during this conversation? Ultimately, because the, the, the consequences of not hitting it are so horrific. And, you know, and I think that's what will hit home ultimately to everybody. You know, we know as a country we need to do this and we have to deliver it. Uh, we know we can do it. We've got all of the technology available to us. We've got all of the expertise available to us. Uh, we just need to put shovels in the ground and get on with it. And um, so I remain optimistic that we'll do it and we'll deliver it. Thank you to my guests, Keith Anderson, David G. Victor and Antonella Battaglini. And to you for listening to this episode of Energised, made in partnership with Iberdrola and Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Faye Atabita and edited by Mark Roberts. Join us in the next episode as we hear about smart grids, what they are and why they are so critical to the energy transition. We'll be joined by Marta Solas, Head of Smart Grid Operations at Scottish Power Energy Networks and Charles Wood, the Deputy Director of Energy UK. 